I hope you're doing well this morning. I invite you to take your copy of God's Word and open your Bibles to Colossians chapter 1. We're going to be in Colossians chapter 1 together this morning. And as you're uh, turning to Colossians 1, I told you last week that I'm going to take uh, just a moment before uh, my sermon uh, over the next few weeks just to share some different thoughts with you as we're getting to know one another, uh, just thoughts about ministry and pastoring and so forth. And uh, this this morning I wanted to talk for a moment about what you can expect from me in terms of how I steward my time. And uh, that's a very important question. God has given each of us uh, a a certain amount of treasure, a certain amount of talent, and a certain amount of time. And we want to be good stewards of all of those things. And so the way that I steward my time as a pastor is that I divide every day basically into three parts. Uh, The first part of the day, the morning, is the time that I spend uh, with God. I I cultivate my own walk with God in the mornings, and I spend time in sermon preparation so that I'll be ready on Sundays to bring God's Word to you. In the afternoons, I uh, invest in our church family with meetings with uh, staff members and church members, meeting with you, and spend the afternoon focused on the church. And then in the evenings, I devote that to my family and uh, trying to invest and be a good husband and a good uh, father at home. Now, there are exceptions to all three of those things. Sometimes the week looks a little bit different, but that's basically how I I, uh, divide and steward every day. And then uh, once one day a week, I... um, I take as a day of rest. And so for most people, that day is Sunday where you intentionally Sabbath, you take a break, you stop working and you're resting and and you're refilling the bucket and you're focusing on your relationship with God and enjoying God and his gifts. For me and for most of our church staff, Sunday is a work day. And so most of us take a different day of the week. And the day that I take is Friday. And I take Fridays to, uh, to enjoy God, to enjoy his gifts and to enjoy his greatest gift in my life, which is my family, my wife and my children. So I try to guard Fridays for them. Um, And the reason I tell people that I, I, I really focus on guarding Fridays for family is because any number of people could be a great pastor at Moberly. We've got a wonderful team of pastors and ministers here. But my wife has one husband, my kids have one dad, and I've got one chance not to mess it up. Amen? And so you pray for me as I try to steward my time and my responsibilities in a faithful way. Now, hopefully you've found your way to Colossians uh, chapter 1 this morning. And as we look at the text, I want you to consider this question. What are your greatest hopes for your church family? What do you really hope that your church would be and do? Now, as you think about that question, whatever those hopes are, Whatever you really wish that the church would be or do, let me suggest that the most powerful thing that you can do to see the church become all that she was meant to be and do, the most powerful thing you can do is pray for the church. Amen? Sometimes we try prayer as the last thing that we do, right? Someone has said, well, that prayer ought to be our first response, not our last resort. And sometimes we treat prayer as if it's ineffectual. Like we say, you know, I guess all we can do is pray. Folks, prayer is the most powerful thing that you can do. And so if there's something that God has burdened your heart for your church family, there there are a lot of different ways you can handle that. Sometimes we complain about the church because it's not all that it should be, or we agitate or try to manipulate to try to make the church into what we want it to be, or we leave to try to find another church that we think will be all that it should be. But what we should be doing is to pray for the church to be all that she should be. And, And the reason that that is powerful is because it's asking God to do what only God can do. 
And that's why we pray. We say, God, if the church is going to be all you want it to be, you've got to show up. If the church is going to do all you want it to do, you've got to move in power. And so prayer is the most powerful thing that you can do for your church family. And I encourage you to pray for your church every single day. Amen? Now, in Colossians chapter 1, verses 9 through 14, we see the Apostle Paul's prayer for the church. This is a prayer that he prays for the church at Colossae where he expresses his greatest hopes for the church. And we really see him highlight two key desires that he has for the church. And so let's look together at the text at Colossians chapter 1, and I'm going to begin reading in verse 9. It says, For this reason also, since the day we heard this. Now, what is the this that he's talking about that he has heard? Well, it's the immediate context of chapter 1. In verses 3 through 8, Paul has talked about the fact that he heard about their faith in Jesus that was growing, their love for the saints that was growing, their hope in heaven that was growing, and their growth in the gospel. And he's saying because we've heard about this spiritual growth in the church, we haven't stopped praying for you. Now let me just pause right here and say that Paul is doing something very important. He's not simply congratulating the church at Colossae for all the spiritual growth that they've experienced. It's not like he comes in verses 3 through 8 and says, I've heard about your great faith and your great love and your great hope and your great spiritual growth. Congratulations, you've arrived. And it'd be very tempting to do that. Sometimes as a church, especially if you've experienced God and moving in great ways, it's kind of easy to sort of rest on your laurels, so to speak, to say, boy, we have arrived as a church. But it's really important that we don't ever do that. And that's not what Paul does. He doesn't say we've arrived. No, he says, listen, I have heard about the great spiritual progress you are making. Therefore, I haven't stopped praying for you. And he begins to pray that God would do even more in the days to come than he has even in the days that have gone by. And that's very important for us as a church as well, that no matter how God has moved in the past, that we would never say that we've arrived as a church, but that we would say, God, thank you for the progress that we are making. Thank you for your work in our midst. But we are asking God for you to do even greater things in the future than you've even done in the past. Amen? And that's what, exactly what the Apostle Paul is doing. I've heard about this great progress you've made. Therefore, it is really important for me to pray even more for you. Now, let me just simplify what's happening in this paragraph. This is one long sentence in the Greek New Testament, verses 9 through 14. But in this long sentence, Paul is essentially praying for two things. He makes two prayer requests, okay? The first one you see in verse 9. The second one you see in verse 10. And you can identify them with the word that, T-H-A-T. So I want you to look for that. You're going to see two of them in these verses, and it will show you what Paul is praying for. Here's the first thing that he prays for. Verse 9, we are asking that. You see it there? We are asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of God's will in all wisdom and spiritual understanding. So the first request that Paul makes here is that the church would grow deep in their knowledge of Jesus. And then verse 10, he gives the second prayer request, so that, there's that word that, so that you may walk worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him. So the second prayer request is not only that they would grow deep in their knowledge of Jesus, but that they would live a life pleasing to Jesus. And then he explains exactly what a life pleasing to Jesus looks like in the rest of the, of the paragraph. Look at verse, right in the middle of verse 10. I pray that you would walk worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him. What does that look like? Here it is. Bearing fruit in every good work and growing in the knowledge of God. 
being strengthened with all power according to God's glorious might so that you may have great endurance and patience, joyfully giving thanks to the Father who has enabled you to share in the saints' inheritance in the light. He has rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of the Son He loves. In Him we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. So the text is very simple. Paul is expressing his heart to God for the church at Colossae. And he is praying for them and just makes two simple requests. Number one, this is a prayer that believers would grow deep in their knowledge of Jesus. He says, I pray that you will be filled with the knowledge of God's will in all wisdom and spiritual understanding. Now, I think it's important just to stop here and and talk about this word knowledge for a moment. He's praying that they would be full of knowledge. Now, I've experienced over a number of years, sometimes when I talk with people about the importance of knowing God, increasing your knowledge of God, and we'll, we'll have a discussion about the scriptures or maybe we'll wade into some theological topic, and sometimes the person that I'm conversing with will say, you know, theology, blah. You know, I, I don't really care about theology. I, it's just important, you know, that you love Jesus. Which, of course, is a theological statement, right? Like, why should you love Jesus? What's so great about Jesus that you should love him? But they, they almost pit knowledge of God against love of God. Or they'll say, you know, I just don't want to be filled with like a bunch of head knowledge. I want, I want to have like a heart love towards God. Or they'll say, you know, theology doesn't really matter that much. I don't really care about theology, but I really care about worship. And so they kind of divide these two things out. And, and I think that that is a huge mistake to make. And here's why. You cannot love a God you don't know. And yes, we do not want theology divorced from our affection towards Christ, right? We don't want head and heart to be separated, but actually our knowledge of God should increase our love for God. The more you come to know God and his grace, the more you will love him. The more you think deeply about the scriptures and think deeply and theologically, the more you, your heart should be stirred to worship him. And so let's just be very careful that we don't sort of push knowledge aside or theology aside or the importance of the scriptures or thinking wisely about God aside. That is very important to cultivating a heart that loves God deeply. Amen? So that's what Paul's praying for. He's saying, my prayer is that you would love God with all your mind. Isn't that what Jesus said was the most important command? That you would love God with all of your what? Heart, soul, mind, and strength. Paul is saying, I pray that you would know God deeply. And now, he, he very specifically, in a couple of ways, he says, I, I pray that you would have a knowledge of God's will. So the first thing he's praying for here is that they would know God's will. And it's really important, right, as we're thinking about Paul's prayer here. Sometimes we think that prayer is asking that God would accomplish our will. But Paul is doing the opposite. He's saying, look, prayer is not asking God to accomplish our will, but that we would come to understand his will. That's the prayer request, that the church would be full of people who have the knowledge of God's will. That's what we're doing when we're praying. God, right, Jesus, didn't, didn't he tell us this? We pray, God, your will be done. 
And that's what Paul is praying for here. Now, let me just ask you, how many of you in the room today would love to know God's will for your life? Would you just raise your hand up? Look all around the room. That's pretty much everybody in the room. That's the big question, right? Like, what is God's will for my life? Let me just share some really good news with you this morning. God's will for your life is not some hidden mystery that you have to decode. And sometimes we way. Can you hear me? <laughs> All right. Sometimes we treat God's will as if it's something hidden that we have to find or something mysterious that we have to decode. And like God is sort of hiding his will from us because he doesn't really want us to know what he wants for our life. And nothing could be further from the truth. God loves to reveal his will. Now you ask, how does God reveal his will? He reveals his will through his word. And so if you want to know the will of God, you have to know the word of God. In fact, the more you know the word of God, the more you'll understand the will of God. And what I've found is that God speaks to us primarily in two ways, through the scriptures and through his spirit. Through the scriptures and through his spirit. But usually the spirit speaks to us by just repeating the scriptures to us. Certainly the Spirit will never tell us anything that contradicts the Scriptures, and usually the Spirit is simply applying the Scriptures to our individual situations. And so if you really want to know the will of God, you need to press in in your relationship with God so that you are saturated with the Scriptures and sensitive to the Spirit. Does that make sense? The more you're saturated with the Scriptures and sensitive to the Spirit, the more you will understand God's will for your life. It's not a mystery. We have a talkative God who loves to reveal himself. And he's revealed himself to us through his word. Sometimes people talk about learning about God's will in weird ways, right? And God usually doesn't operate that way. You know, some people will say, well, you know, I woke up this morning and I just asked God to show me his will. And I had my Cheerios and my bowl there and he just spelled it out for me. But that doesn't work for me, right? The only thing my Cheerios spell out is ooh. (laughs) God reveals himself through his word. And right, the word revelation really matters. It means God tells you what he wants you to know. And so we, if we want to know God's will, we're going to become saturated with God's word. That's why it's really important to develop the discipline of a daily time where you are in the scriptures and a weekly time where you gather with God's people. Because daily, you read the Bible for yourself, and God's Spirit is going to apply His Word into your life, into particular situations. And then weekly, as you hear God's Word taught from your pastor, or taught, discussed in the uh, context of a connect group, you begin to understand more and more about God's will. But now, he doesn't just pray that they would understand God's will. Paul also prays that they would have God's wisdom. Look at it in verse 9. We're asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of His will in all, let's say it together, wisdom and spiritual understanding. Now, wisdom is simply, it's simply this. It means having God's perspective on life. Having God's perspective on life. Seeing life from God's point of view. The reality is God has a perspective on every aspect of our life. If you are a married person today, God has a perspective on how you live as a husband or a wife. If you are a single person today, God has a perspective on how you honor God in your singleness. If you are a parent, 
or a child. God has a perspective on how you live as a parent or as a child. If you work, God has a perspective about how you are an employer or an employee. If you are a student, God has a perspective on how you should go to school. God has a perspective on our entire life. And Paul is praying that we would know God in such a way that we would not only know his will through his word, but that we would also have his wisdom for our life. And folks, it's so important to have God's perspective on life because there are so many other perspectives out there, right? I mean, aren't we just, our ears are constantly bombarded with messages from the, wor- from the world claiming to be true, claiming to be right, uh, claiming to, to have all the knowledge you need. The world has a kind of knowledge, and it is clamoring for our attention. By the way, that was certainly true in the first century. When Paul writes to the church of Colossae, he's writing to a church that is experiencing a false teaching in its midst. There were some false teachers that had had risen up and it was threatening the life of the church. Many scholars believe that this false teaching was the beginnings of something called Gnosticism. Gnosticism comes from the Greek word gnosis, which means knowledge. And Gnosticism was this view that the material earth doesn't matter, that matter is evil, And that the point of life is to escape this world and to attain some kind of higher spiritual knowledge out there in the universe somewhere. And that was what these false teachers were teaching in the Church of Colossae. Now, you may not think that that really matters to us today, but actually there are some worldviews out there that are not too dissimilar. You may remember a number of years ago, maybe 10 or 15 years ago, on Oprah. Oprah highlighted a philosophy that was known as the secret. Anybody remember that, the secret that was on Oprah? And it was the same kind of idea. The the, the thought was that if you just send out sort of positive vibes out into the universe and you just practice the power of positive thinking, that life is just going to open up and that your real problem is that you don't think positively enough. And so if you're driving to the mall and you're hoping to get that upfront parking spot, well, then you just send some positive vibes out in there into the universe. And if you wish hard enough, then life will open up and the uh, parking spot will open up as well. Now, there's a Greek word for that, baloney. baloney but that was kind of this Gnostic worldview as well that there's some sort of higher truer knowledge right the world is always putting in front of you a claim that they really know what is true and good and right that's why it is so interesting to me this word that Paul uses in verse 9 he says I pray that you would come to the knowledge of God's will in all wisdom and spiritual understanding. But the word he uses, he actually uses a little compound word in Greek. He uses not gnosis, that's knowledge. He uses epigenosis. That means full knowledge or true knowledge. In other words, Paul is saying there are some people who are peddling truth to you. They are are, uh, claiming to have knowledge. But I pray that you would have true knowledge, that you would have full knowledge, that you have the knowledge that only comes through a relationship with Jesus Christ. Paul is saying, I pray that you would know the truth as it is in Jesus so that you would be able to discern what is error out in the world. And and listen, folks, one of the signs that you are maturing and growing in your knowledge of God is the ability to discern truth from error. The ability to discern what is true knowledge as opposed to the world's knowledge, which is knowledge falsely so-called, as Paul calls it. And that is so important for us in this day and time. 
because there is a real question of, of who are the trustworthy voices, who really has the voice of truth out there. And let me just tell you, just because it's on YouTube doesn't make it, it true. Can I get a witness? Just because it's on Facebook doesn't make it true. The arbiter of truth is the Scriptures. And so the real question you ought to be asking when you're hearing a particular message from the culture If you really want to discern if something is true, then apply God's word and his wisdom to what you're hearing and ask this question, is this biblical? And if it's not biblical, if it contradicts the scriptures, then you discard it. If it's biblical, then you can say it's good and true and right. But you ought to be growing in your knowledge so that you know how to discern truth from error. Amen? And that's Paul's first prayer request, that they would grow deep in their knowledge of Jesus. But now there's a second prayer request. Verse 10, he prays not only that they would grow deep in their knowledge of Jesus, but that they would live a life pleasing to Jesus. In other words, not just that they would know God, but that their lives would look like they know God. Not just that they would have deep knowledge of who God is, but that their lives would begin to reflect that. And you see in verse 10, he says, my prayer is that you would walk worthy of the Lord living a life fully pleasing to him. That's Paul's prayer request. That your life would be not only marked by an increasing knowledge of who God is, what his will is, what his wisdom is that you see through his word, but that your life would begin to be pleasing to the Lord. That's my prayer for you. Not, Not just that you would, right, we don't want just a head full of knowledge about God. We want hearts that are stirred to love God truly. We want what we know about God to be transferred into our life so that our lives become pleasing to God. Now, you may ask, Pastor, what does it look like to live a life that's worthy of the Lord? What does it look like to live a life that's pleasing to God? Well, I'm so glad you asked because Paul actually tells us right here in the text. In verses 10 through 14, he uses a series of I-N-G words, okay, that you're going to notice in the text. Uh, If you're an English teacher in the house today, you know this as a participle, Okay, a participle, it's an I-N-G word, and he uses a series of them in verses 10 through 12 that explains exactly what it looks like to live a life pleasing to God. Notice, for instance, in verse 10, he says, bearing fruit and growing. You see the I-N-G words? What does it look like to, to walk worthy? It means you bear fruit and grow. Look down at verse 11, being, there's the I-N-G word, being strengthened. Verse 12, giving thanks, right? So Paul is telling us, he's not leaving us in the dark, right? I told you, God is a talkative God. His will is not mysterious. If you want to know what his will for your life is, it's that you walk worthy of the Lord. And there's no question in the text of what that means. Paul tells us explicitly how to live a life pleasing to God. Let's look at these in turn. Verse 10 Bearing fruit in every good work and growing in the knowledge of God. Paul tells us first that a worthy walk, a life pleasing to Jesus, is marked by growth. Because my prayer for you is that as you're trying to please Jesus, that you would bear fruit and grow in your life. Now, notice he's borrowing that phrase from verse 6. If you look back up in verse 6, he's talking about the gospel. He says the gospel is bearing fruit and growing all over the world. Now verse 10, he takes what is true of the gospel, that it is marked by unstoppable growth, and he applies it to our lives. He says what is true of the gospel should also be true of your life. That in the same way that the gospel is bearing fruit and growing, you ought to be bearing fruit 
and growing. Paul is saying if you really want to please God, your life ought to be marked by spiritual growth. That you ought to be growing more mature day by day in your walk with Jesus Christ. Not just that seeds would be planted in our life, but that roots would go deep. Not just that roots would grow deep, but that a plant would grow high. Not just that a plant would grow high, but that we would bear great fruit. He's saying if you want to please God, your life ought to be marked by spiritual growth. And so let me ask you this question. Are you growing in your walk with Christ? Are you more mature as a follower of Jesus today than you were yesterday? Do you love God more now than when God first saved you? Uh, Do you fight harder against your sin than when you were first redeemed? Do, Do you seek to obey King Jesus more faithfully than when he first saved you? Do you care to know more about him now than you ever have? Do you care about the things that matter to the heart of God more now than you did a year ago? If not, then you're not growing. You may be backslidden. What God calls us to is to move from being spiritual infants to being spiritually mature adults. And, And let me just tell you, there is a big difference between growing old in the Lord and growing up in the Lord. And here's what I mean by that. Some people will say, Pastor, I've been a Christian a long time. That doesn't necessarily mean anything. Just because you made a profession of faith 40, 50, 60 years ago, you might have grown old in the Lord. It doesn't mean you have grown up in the Lord. Growing up in the Lord means that your life is marked by increasing maturity, right? A life pleasing to God is a life growing into maturity. You think about an infant, right? An infant can't do anything for themselves. They've got to be fed. They've got to be changed. The only thing they can do on their own is cry, basically. An infant is supposed to grow into adulthood where they move from being fed to being able to feed themselves and then eventually to be able to feed others. Now, I'm wearing flamingo socks this morning. Got a little flamingos on my socks. Do you know about flamingos? That... When they are babies, they have a beak that is shaped a certain way. But as they grow old, the, the, the shape and size of their beaks actually change because when they're babies, they're being fed by mama. But when they grow old, they begin to feed themselves. And so their, their beaks have to change. So let me ask you, how's your spiritual beak this morning? Is it still a baby beak? where You, you just have to be like baby Gerber spoon-fed the scriptures, Right? Or have you matured in such a way that now you can feed yourself? Your spiritual beak has changed in shape and size. It's grown. Now you can feed yourself. And God maybe is calling you to mature even more so that you're capable of feeding others, right, and making disciples. That's what spiritual maturity and spiritual growth looks like. And that is what God has called us to do as we live a life that's pleasing to him. Now, there's a second thing in verse 11, another I-N-G word. He says, look. You should bear fruit in every good work, increase or grow in your knowledge of God. But then in verse 11, he says, being strengthened with all power according to God's glorious might so that you may have great endurance and patience. Now, notice notice these 
terms that he uses, strengthened, power, and might, okay? Paul just piles these terms up on one another. Let me just ask you, how many of you would be honest enough today to say that in your life, you need God's strength, God's power, and God's might? Anybody like some of that? Let me give you a really good word. If you're a follower of, of Jesus, God's power, God's strength, and God's might is something that God will delight to give you if you'll ask him for it. I want you to notice this phrase is in the passive, the passive voice. Being strengthened. That means this is something God does for you, um, which is really important because the Christian message is not that if you come to know Jesus, that you'll discover the champion in you, that you'll, uh, through positive self-affirmation, that you'll grow really strong and you can begin to strengthen yourself. No, the Christian message is almost exactly the opposite, that you don't have what it takes that you don't have the strength that you need, that you are entirely broken and sinful, but that if you will call out to God for his power, his strength, and his might, he'll do for you what you cannot do for yourself. That's the Christian message, right? Jesus teaches this in the Sermon on the Mount. You remember in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5, Jesus talks about the blessed life. And he says the blessed life begins with a recognition of being poor in spirit. Blessed are the poor in spirit. In other words, Paul, uh, Jesus says you don't, you don't uh, experience blessing when you sort of realize how great you are and pick yourself up by your own bootstraps and, and be the champion that we all knew that you could be. He doesn't say that. He says blessing begins with a recognition that you are spiritually bankrupt, that you don't have what it takes. But then he says later, <clears throat> blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness and they will be filled. There's that passive again, be In other words, Jesus is saying a life of blessing begins when you recognize your own spiritual bankruptcy. You don't have the resources that you need. You don't have what it takes. But God does. And blessing begins when you recognize I can't, but he can. I don't have what it takes, but he has what it takes. And I'm going to call out for God to do in my life what I cannot do in my own life. Spiritual blessing begins when you say to God, God, I need you. That's a prayer. If you will pray it to God, that God loves to answer. If you say, God, I need you to be the dad that you've called me to be. I don't have what it takes. God, I need you. And if you'll ask God, God will show up for you in a unique way. If you, if you say, I, I, I've, I've got a wife and I want to love her like Christ loves the church, which means I have to give myself up for her, but I'm selfish. I don't like to do that. God, I need you. God will suddenly step into my marriage and do something that I cannot do in my own strength. You say, I, I want to be the best employee or the best student that I can be, but, but I struggle with that. God, I need you. God will show up and do for you what you cannot do for yourself. And so, listen, a life pleasing to God is a life marked by increasing dependence on the Lord. A recognition that he has the strength and the power and the might that I need. And if I will simply call out my need to God, God will be sufficient to meet every need in my life. Amen? And it it goes against everything in us because from the moment we are knee high, we say, I can do it myself. And that just increases through our life. I can do it myself. And the Christian says, I cannot do it myself. God, I need you. And the moment you say that, 
God will show up with his power and his strength and his might. And you'll get God's resources for life's hardships. That's why Paul says here, you'll be able to endure with patience. If you want to be able to endure with patience, if you want to be able to meet life's hardships, listen, the more you will rely on God's resources, the more resilience you'll have to face life's hardships. My parents owned a... uh, a rent house in Beaumont, Texas. And uh, they'd actually, we, we'd live there and then moved overseas. My dad worked in the oil field and we moved back, and they, but they kept the house and they just used it as a rental. And over the course of about 20 years, that house kind of became dilapidated. Uh, in fact, there's a Hebrew word that describes the house in Beaumont. It's the word Ichabod, which means the glory has departed. And it just was kind of a mess. And so uh, the summers of my high school years, my dad and I would go every Saturday from Houston to Beaumont and we would work on that house and fix up that house to where we could try to sell it. Well, one particular Saturday we go there and there was this tree, the huge oak tree in the back of the, the, the backyard. And my dad said, okay, your job today is to cut down that tree. And so he gave me a handsaw try to cut down this huge oak tree. And so I go out there, I take that hand saw and I'm, you know, I'm a high schooler. I'm like, yeah, I can take down this tree, no problem. And so I just start working on that tree and I'm sawing and I'm working, I'm sweating and I'm, I'm laboring for minutes. And I start wearing out and I'm not making any progress. I mean, I'm just like scratching the edge of that oak tree. And I'm, so I start working for minutes more <laughs> and I'm dripping sweat and I'm just getting totally exhausted as I try to take down this tree when all of a sudden the miraculous happened. I heard, as it were, the noise of angels singing. If you've ever wondered what an angel choir sounds like, it sounds like the neighbor's chainsaw is what it sounds like. (laughs) A neighbor saw me over there like an idiot with that little rinky-dinky handsaw working on this oak tree. He had pity on this young high school kid and so he comes out and brrr, he brings his chainsaw and just one, two, three, four, just little cuts right there and boom, he brings that tree down because he had the resources that I didn't have. I was operating in my own strength with all the effort that I had, but I didn't have the resources I needed. It took someone seeing my need, seeing that there was something I couldn't do in my own strength and coming and bringing his resources to meet my need. And that is exactly what God will do in your life if you'll ask him for it. And it's actually a marker of maturity. It is a marker of a life that's pleasing to God that we grow in dependence on God every day. In fact, that's one of our values here at Moberly Baptist Church, the value of personal transformation, that we grow in absolute dependence on God every day, that we realize he has the resources that I need to meet my need. Amen? So a a life pleasing to Jesus is marked by growth. It's marked by dependence on the Lord. Here's the last one in the text. We see it in verse 12. It is marked by gratitude. If you want a worthy walk, if you want to live a life pleasing to God, then your life will be marked by gratitude. Do you see it in verse 12? Joyfully giving thanks to the Father. Here's the reality. As Christians, we can be grumpy or we can be grateful. We can walk around life like Eeyore, right? Oh, life is so hard, right? It's so bad. It's all down. It's all negative. And we can just be Eeyore, right? And we, we, are, we are just sour and we are grumpy and we see all the problems of the world. All you have to do is watch the news for five minutes and you can get that way. 
But actually, a, a, a marker of a life pleasing to God is a grateful heart. The, the kind of heart where, where we, we don't just look at the negative, we don't just look at what's wrong, but we actually have eyes to see God all around us. We realize God's activity and God's presence and God's grace and God's provision and God's faithfulness. And even in the midst of all the bad stuff, we say, God, you're faithful and I give you thanks. And a life pleasing to God is marked by a grateful heart. And it's interesting. I was talking with Pastor Gio about this this week. He shared with me this, an interesting fact that when you practice giving thanks for something, that the same neurons in your brain begin to fire off as when you are having an intimate conversation with a friend. And I wonder if maybe some of the reasons we don't feel intimate in our relationship with God is because we haven't been giving thanks to God. Maybe if we would practice giving thanks for God and his gifts, for his kindness, for his graciousness, for his faithfulness, maybe we would begin to feel closer to God. Now, some of us struggle with this, and maybe you'd be honest enough to say, Pastor, I don't feel like I have a lot to be grateful for. You know, I'm struggling in life. I'm having a hard time paying the bills, or my health is deteriorating, or my family situation is hard, and I'm just really having a hard time giving thanks. I mean, what could I possibly thank God for? Well, I'm so glad that you asked that question because Paul gives us three reasons we can give thanks in verses 12, 13, and 14. And I'm out of time. I'm done, okay? But let me finish, all right? <laughs> if, you, if you have a hard time giving thanks, and if you say, man, I don't have much to thank God for, let me, let me share, if you know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, three things that you have that you can thank God for. Number one, you have an inheritance. Notice what he says. We joyfully give thanks to the Father. Why? Because he has enabled us to share in the inheritance of the saints in the light. If you know Jesus, you may not have much in this life. You may not have many earthly possessions. You may not even have a parent who's going to leave you an inheritance when they die. But if you know Jesus Christ, then you are an inheritor of the King of kings and the Lord of lords, the God of the universe who owns the cattle on a thousand hills, and he owns, he owns the hills themselves. You have an inheritance with your name on it. And you can give thanks to God for that. God has something that he's going to give you as an inheritance. And you say, Pastor, well, what, what is that inheritance? And I have no idea. It is above my pay grade. I can just tell you, if it's coming from God, it's going to be pretty good. Amen? It is interesting the word that's used here for inheritance is the same word used in the Old Testament to describe the promised land. And so it may be that Paul is simply referring to our promised land, right? New creation, new heavens and new earth, the believer's inheritance. I don't know what the inheritance is going to be. All I know is that it's going to be pretty good. And if you are a follower of Jesus, you can thank God that you have an inheritance. Number two, we have rescue. We have rescue. Look what he says in verse 13. He has rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved son. You may not have much that you feel like you can thank God for, but I'm telling you today that you can thank God that you have been rescued from Satan's dark dominion and transferred into God's kingdom. 
You have been rescued from the domain of darkness. Notice the contrast, by the way, in verse 12 and 13 of darkness and light. You used to only know darkness. Now you know light, right? Think about all the contrasts that are now true of your life because God has rescued you from something and he's rescued you to something. He's rescued you from Satan's kingdom, transferred you into the kingdom of the son he loves. Before Jesus, you knew only darkness. Now, in Christ, you know light. You used to be under oppression, but now in Christ, you've been set free. You used to be guilty, but now you've you've inherited the innocence of God's son. You used to live in fear. Now you live in bold confidence. You used to be lonely. Now you have community. You used to be under judgment. Now you have forgiveness. You used to be a slave. Now in Christ, you are a son. You used to be marked by hatred. Now you're marked by love. You used to know only sin. Now you know God's righteousness. You used to be full of spare. Now you have hope. Do you have much to give thanks for this morning? We have rescue. We have an inheritance. We have rescue. But here's the third thing. You see it in verse 14. We have redemption. We have redemption. In him, we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Now, redemption just means to be set free. It means you once were enslaved, you once were in bondage, you once were in chains, and now in Christ, he has bought you back and you have been delivered. Paul says <clears throat> redemption, he, he gives us this theological term, right? Redemption. But verse 14 actually defines it for us. He says, in him we have redemption. What's redemption? The forgiveness of sins. Paul says that's what redemption is. It is the forgiveness of sins. What that means is that God no longer sees your sin when you're in Christ. If you know Jesus as Lord and Savior, the things that bring you great shame, he has forgiven. The things that you feel guilty about, he has made you innocent. That in Christ, God no longer sees you in your sin. He sees nothing but the righteousness of his very own son. And if you can thank God for nothing else today, you can give thanks for that. We have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. The word forgiveness is a beautiful word. Right here in verse 14, it means simply a sending away, a sending away. Paul is saying when you know Jesus as Lord and Savior, he takes your sin, he takes your brokenness, he takes your mistakes, and he carries it off. Aren't you thankful for that? Aren't you thankful that it doesn't have to cling to you anymore, that Jesus can redeem you and set you free from it and he carries it off? We're staying in the mission house right now and on Friday we had tree trimmers come into the backyard and they brought in this truck and this guy climbed into this bucket and went all the way to the top of these trees and, and they found all of the dead branches and they cut those dead, dead things off and then they carried them away. And folks, that is exactly what God will do for you when you know Jesus as Lord and Savior. He will come into all of those hurt places in your life and he'll bring healing. All of the dead things in your life, he'll make new and alive. He trims away all of those sinful aspects of our life and he carries it off and makes us new. And I can give thanks to God today for that. 